In September and October 2016, the Chilean artist and poet Cecilia Vicuña visited Australia for a series of performances, readings, interviews and collaborations. Cecilia had been invited, on behalf of Liquid Architecture, by fellow Chilean artist and curator Camila Marambio. Listening with Fingers, published on Disclaimer, brings together a material archive of Cecilia's activities in Australia. Documentation, recordings, transcripts and interviews are collected alongside a new recording of the artist's reading poems sent via voice message to the editors in late 2020. Presented here are excerpts from this collection, including moments from Cecilia and Camilla's performance in an abandoned limestone quarry in Queenstown, Tasmania, intersected with extracts from an interview with Mayuki Jokaranta for Unconformist Radio. We then hear moments of conversation between Cecilia and editor Autumn Royal, in which Cecilia speaks to the importance of oral culture, the undervaluing of her work in the past, and her friendship with Leonora Carrington. Following this is a segment of Vicuña's performance for Liquid Architecture's project Why Listen to Animals, in which she presented a set of ten answers, sung spoken in the form of a poetic decalogue, with collaborators Brian Phillips, Sarita Galvez, and Camilla Marambio. Closing this sampler is a reading of the poem Word and Thread, from Vicuña's appearance on the radio program Parallel Lines, hosted by Sarah Savage on Triple R. Entering. I thought that perhaps all this was only a way of remembering. To record in the sense of touching the strings of emotion. To record comes from core, the core of the heart. Listening with the fingers, a sensory memory came first. The scattered bones, the sticks and feathers were sacred objects I had to put in order. To follow their will was to rediscover a way of thinking. Listening to the elements I traveled down pathways of the mind that led me to an ancient silence waiting to be heard. To think was to follow the music, the feeling of the elements. This is the way a communion with the sky and the sea began. The necessity to respond to their desires with a work that could be a prayer, a joy to the elements. Joy itself is the prayer. In the act of offering, I recalled an essential poetic form. If at the beginning of time, poetry was an act of communion, a form of entering into a shared vision. Now it is a space that can be entered, a spatial metaphor.
it was natural for poetry to complete itself in space. If the poem is temporal, an oral temple, the palace or form is a spatial temple. Both temples are entryways to the sacred space of metaphor. Metaphorane to carry beyond. Metaphor takes us to other spaces of contemplation. To contemplate temples us together or temples simultaneously the interior and the exterior. An active form of contemplation, the spatial metaphor brings together two forms of prayer, temporal and spatial. Precarious is what is obtained by prayer. The kipu that records nothing, an empty string, was my first precarious object. I was praying, making a kipu, offering up the desire of memory. Desire is the offering. The body is only a metaphor. In ancient Peru, the viners traced lines of dust in the desert as a way of divining or letting the divine speak through them. They invoked the spirits through an incantation and tracing lines on the ground. Lempad of Bali says, all art is transient, even stone is worn away. God makes use of the essence of the offerings and the people of the material remains. A form of temporal, spatial writing aspires to endure in the intensity of the emotion. To recover memory is to recover unity. To be one with the sky and the sea, to feel the earth as your own skin is the only way to pleasure her. New York, 1983.
Yeah, it's true for me. It's, it's a tremendous joy to meet Camila and to see that Camila hears what my work is about because part of what she was saying is that uh, because my sound is is an indigenous uh, woman thing, it has been despised and ridiculed for decades. So for me to find a young woman that is not only willing to hear, but to invite me here and to uh, go along and do uh, her own uh, following in these steps, which is, of course, her own uh, thing. So how do I collaborate? I collaborate with her or with other musicians in the same form, by not uh, programming, by not planning, by not um, setting any kind of structure other than let's hear each other and let's move into it. And so she knows that this is the way I work, so she does it too. And we proceed from there. We proceed from the first sound. So that's the key for me, that when you think of improvisation, a lot of people think that improvisation is planned. And some musicians plan improvisations, that's true. But in our case, we really uh, hardly even talk about it. We just know and trust. And we, it's like we throw ourselves into the abyss because true sound to me emerges from, from that encounter with the abyss. There's a word that people are using a lot lately, which is decolonizing. And this is, uh, from my perspective, the earth itself is a profoundly a feminine energy. So is the water. So all this layer of the conquerors, the invaders, the murderers, the people who have destroyed the ancient cultures, not only here, but around the world, to me, is, is like a superficial layer and it is up to us the women to return the power where the power really is which is in the creativity of the life force and in, if you read science contemporary science even the word life force has been deleted you see science wants to pretend that life can be created in the love so there is this violence against what is unnamed what it is not controlled and we represent that. We represent as women, any woman has this extraordinary uh, creative energy within. And so to be there is a huge pleasure. 
is like a deviation from the norm, is like breaking the rule, and that in itself is a delight. sound and breath are really uh, sort of variations of each other and so words are always in my performance and even though they may not be heard as words for example the first word that I was singing was aguita and aguita is uh, a sort of a Spanish word agua transformed by the Chilean indigenous way of speaking Spanish into little water. So you speak to the water uh, in, in a language where you uh, say aguita, aguita, and the water hears it. And of course, I, I was saying many other phrases about the, the wound of the water and so forth, but the, word, the phrases and the words are transformed. If you look at the position of poetry in other cultures, it is of tremendous power and tremendous reach. And actually, the oral poets say this plainly, that the reach of an oral poem is infinite. Yes. Because it can be sensed, it can be heard, it can be told. It's, it's just a form that's alive and moving and changing. And you have to prove, for example, some of the great poems of humanity were oral for perhaps hundreds of years before they were written down. Yes. You know, and this is true of many, many cultures. It's true of the, the Homeric poems, you know, it's true of the Nordic saga. sagas, it's true of Popol Vuh and the Maya tradition and so forth. So instead, in the written tradition, you need to read. A, a book, you know, so the reach is naturally limited, so it only makes sense that orality is something wide open. For example, I did a movie called What is Poetry to You yes. in, in an oral culture in Bogota, and everybody, you know, the beggars, the children, the policemen, everybody had these extraordinary discourses on poetry. And actually, when I show it in places like New York or, or, or Europe, people think that a poorly scripted it because how can people, street people, be so smart and yes. have all these complex thoughts? But that is what happens with our culture. Everybody's trying to be smart. I published 25 books in my life. But 90% of my work is unpublished. These books represent only a small part yes. of what I have done. And so, how do I feel? Well, there's a sadness, there's a sense of loss. For, for example, just even this morning, um, there's going to be an exhibition opening 
next week in Santiago that includes a work of mine and they asked me to write a little text to go with it and in this text I speak of the mother of the work that I will be showing and the mother of this work is a work that I did in 1974. It is a painting of uh, two women who have become widows at the age of 24 these are really my, my girlfriends because that's when the military coup happened in Chile. I was 24. Yes. And many of my girlfriends became immediately widows from the persecution, you know. And so uh, in this painting, uh, one uh, girl widow is consoling the other girl widow. So I'm describing this in the text. And so the gallery immediately writes to me, and this happened this morning, asking me, can we show that work that you're talking about? And I say, no, because I destroyed it. And so, why did I destroy it? Because it was so painful to watch this painting that I had created. That's on the one hand. But on the other, it was destroyed because my work was so undervalued. Nobody paid any attention. Nobody thought that what I was doing had any significance. So what would I do with all these hundreds of paintings? Yes. I could lend them to friends who threw them in the garbage. I could, even I, would destroy them because if you have no meaning for others, you don't have meaning for yourself. I wanted to ask, I am a huge fan of Lenora Carrington, who was your friend, and I'll never forget reading her short story, The Debutante. It's about a hyena who wants to be a debutante. She puts, the hyena puts on the skin of the debutante because yeah. the woman who is the debutante doesn't want to do her deb. And you know the debutante is herself. I can tell you that that was her. That was her, wow. Because she was a wild Irish girl, but within the context of a very rich, aristocratic English family. Her mother was Irish, you see, and her nanny was Irish. So everybody that worked in that fantastic manor house where she was born uh, was Irish. So it was like a little Irish wild universe full of legend and myth and poetry and art, the wild art of Leonora inside the constraint of this rich, business-oriented English family. Mm. So even though she was an artist from the start, her father wanted to present her to the queen, and so he did. So force her to be a debutante. So her revenge is to be who she is. And they persecuted her. Her family persecuted her, put her in a psychiatric hospital. Yes, that's right. You know, all those stories. But she came out with flying colors from all those horrendous experiences thanks to poetry and thanks to her art. If it hadn't been for her art and also her artist friends who supported her, because to be an artist, you need a network. You need a network of people who believe in you and that network can be composed of just one person and that's enough.
poem that I wrote is called Word and Thread and I think I wrote it back in the mid 90s Word is a thread and the thread is language non-linear body a line associated to other lines a word Once written, risks becoming linear, but word and thread exist on another dimensional plane. Vibratory forms in space and in time, acts of union and separation. The word is silence and sound, the thread, fullness and emptiness. The weaver sees her fiber as the poet sees her word. The thread feels the hand as the word feels the tongue. Structures of feeling in the double sense of sensing and signifying. The word and the thread feel our passing. This recording was produced by Mara Schrettweger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. 
To learn more, head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.